The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the UK government has approved a road tunnel through Stonehenge. Will it ruin this iconic World Heritage Site? We talked to Mike Pitts, an archaeologist who's done excavations at Stonehenge, about the debate over the tunnel and its effect on the ancient stones and their surrounding landscape. Plus, museums in France are urging their government to let them reopen. I talked to Jean-Francois Chounier of Mousson, a museum in Marseille. And for this episode's Work of the Week, we speak to the artist Christelle Fischetti about a work by Carla Black. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of other newsletters. Last week, archaeologists excavating Stonehenge announced that they'd uncovered prehistoric human remains and ancient artefacts during a recent investigation there. The Neolithic and Bronze Age finds were discovered in excavations conducted in preparation for a controversial new infrastructure project that will have an irreversible impact on the site. It will replace a busy road which currently runs close to Stonehenge with a tunnel with a dual carriageway or divided highway that passes through part of the ancient site, removing vehicles from the view of the thousands of tourists that visit the site each year. The road tunnel project is welcomed by English Heritage, who conserve the Stonehenge site, but opposed by UNESCO, who administrate World Heritage sites. Meanwhile, just this week, new evidence has emerged that links some of the Stonehenge monument to a quarry in Wales. I spoke to Mike Pitts, an archaeologist who's led excavations at the Stonehenge site, about the latest evidence and the debate on the future of one of the world's most famous ancient landscapes. Mike, to begin with, tell us what the latest information we have about Stonehenge is. There's a great thing about Stonehenge, that the older it gets, the more we know about it. Not least because of the roadworks, actually, that have been um, underway now for decades, in, in a sense, um, there's more archaeological fieldwork taking place in and around the Stonehenge World Heritage Site than we've seen ever before. And that, allied with the new sciences that archaeology has to bring to bear, means that our ideas about the monument and its history are really changing. And I think, unsurprisingly, what's happening is that we're getting a picture of an increasingly complicated world, as well as a complex history for the monument itself, you know, it, its duration is extending. It was an active, ceremonial, religious site for many centuries, perhaps as much as a millennium. Uh, and during that time, there are many constructional changes as well as probably religious ideas. We're struggling still to untangle all those architectural phases, partly because most of our information on that side comes from excavations that were done in the first half of the last century and weren't understandably uh, done to the standards we would follow today um, and less helpfully they weren't particularly well recorded either at the time and so it would be good to have new excavation actually at the monument but there are reasons that you can imagine why that's quite difficult to achieve but in the wider landscape until quite recently I think it would be fair to say that that archaeologists imagined Stonehenge as a monument in a barren landscape that there was something about that landscape for religious, ritual, possibly political reasons that meant it was largely empty. Now we know it was completely the opposite. On the one hand, thanks to major excavations immediately outside the World Heritage Site that have been paid for by the Ministry of Defence, who have been uh, building huge numbers of new houses to accommodate soldiers moving back in from Germany, uh, we found a lot of evidence for settlement activity older than Stonehenge, contemporary with Stonehenge as one particular place where we think um, people were living at the very time the major Stonehenge was built and that these were the people who did it. On the other hand, within the World Heritage Society in particular, there have been very extensive geophysical surveys, which are um, surface surveys that don't involve any excavation, and the technology 
for that has hugely improved and is continuing to do so. And so every time uh, a different institution from somewhere in the world passes over the Stonehenge World Heritage Site, they find more things. And what that's revealed is a huge number of apparently rich or religious monuments on a much smaller scale than Stonehenge, but in some ways similar. They all seem to be circular. Some of them involve uh, a, a ring ditch. Some have rings of pits or post holes. But without excavation, of course, we don't know exactly what they are, and neither can we date them, so we don't know whether they're old or the same age or not so old as Stonehenge itself. But there's clearly a very rich and active landscape around Stonehenge, and that's a huge change in, in, in knowledge and thinking. One of the key factors about this is recent excavations have happened precisely because there are plans to change the road network around Stonehenge, right? So, so there are new findings that have emerged very recently that, have, that are a direct result of those excavations that are happening because of a planned road. Can you say something about that? There's been a surprising amount of archaeological excavation in, in the World Heritage Site and around in recent years. And some of that has been research-led, so there have been some major university projects, um, one of which has, has just now come to completion is starting to be published in detail. Um, and that has involved excavation at protected scheduled ancient monuments and famous sites like Woodhenge and indeed Stonehenge itself. In fact, one small excavation, I, I was a co-director. There's also been, on a much larger scale, excavations that wouldn't have happened were it not for development of one kind or another. And most of that to date has been housing, and it's been immediately outside the World Heritage Site. Uh, what is in prospect now, if the tunnel goes ahead, is what will probably be the largest excavation that's been seen in the World Heritage Site and, and nearby, associated with particularly with the portals for the tunnel where the road comes out. And of course the tunnel itself is underground, so most of the roadworks inside the World Heritage Site uh, will have no effect on archaeology or the surface landscape at all. Right. So obviously the crux of this is that we're going to have this complete change to the landscape. Now the people that, that look after Stonehenge, English Heritage, say that finally it's restoring it to the way it would have appeared in prehistoric times by rather than having this road that passes it by having a tunnel that goes under the landscape. But for instance, UNESCO object to it and there are numerous archaeological groups that object to it. Can you summarise, if it's possible, some of those arguments? What are the arguments for and against this, this tunnel? I'll give it a go because it, <laughs> it is quite complex. But in a sense, the debate about this road has been going on for over a century. It first happened immediately after the then private owner fenced the monument off. He was worried about the, literally megaliths falling on visitors. And he fenced it off and put in a ticket office to try and control things. And there was then a lot of local objection to this some of it backed by local archaeologists at the time, and it ended up in the High Court in London, and essentially the objectors were fighting for the right to drive through the centre of the monument because the fence closed off a, a trackway that used to go, go through the stones. And, as you might expect, they lost the case and the fence remained and has been there ever since. But there has been, ever since then, this debate about access to the stones and that road that goes across the landscape. It's interesting in... Recently, there's been a change in the approach within this debate. It has mostly been a kind of niche area, for, particularly dominated by archaeologists and antiquaries, um, for whom the landscape is an 18th century one. Many archaeologists see that landscape through the eyes of William Stukeley, who was our greatest antiquary, and indeed one of our greatest archaeologists. And he spent a lot of time in the Stonehenge landscape in the early 18th century, and uh, very perceptive, and drew a lot of views. And that was shortly before the first maintained road was ever built there. Recently, the debate has, has engaged a much wider public, and most people don't live in the 18th century but live in the present and so instead of archaeologists in the past saying uh, we don't want this road through the world heritage site because in their imaginations that road doesn't even exist um, of course people today know there's a road through the world heritage site and actually now the, the debate is focusing on preserving that road because it gives us a view of the stones as we drive by often in a traffic jam indeed well that helps you get a better view <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> 
what's interesting is about both of these perspectives, I think they're coming from deep within, from a similar origin. And that is there's something about Stonehenge that on the one hand, it's remote and mysterious, incomprehensible. On the other hand, it's accessible, not least because there's a road that goes right by it, but it's in the middle of southern England. You know, it's not as if it's not like Easter Island, say, in the, which for most of us is pretty difficult to get to. So it, it has an important place in our imaginations, and it's a place that represents humanity in a way, a, a place where we go to sometimes physically or at least in our imaginations to reflect and, and escape the modern world to think about the monumentality of time and the fragility of life, to engage with cultures that are completely different from our own. I mean, there's something about Stonehenge that says that with spades on. You look at Stonehenge and you think, whoever built that, they weren't bankers. <laughs> you know, they weren't us. Um, and yet, they, they were grappling with the same things. You know? and, and so that monument represents a human drive to engage with with time and politics and mortality, with creative lunacy. And it's an important space that many of us want to go to, sometimes need to go to. And so anything that threatens a change to that, because we see it as a timeless thing, threatens us personally. And the problem is that the Stonehenge landscape is not timeless. And actually when English Heritage or the National Trust or highways agency, as they are sometimes want to do, say that by building the road tunnel, we will remove the road and return that landscape, uh, that ancient landscape, to how it looked in the Neolithic. This is wrong. It will still be a modern landscape. It will be a 21st century landscape. But it will be a very different landscape where we can actually experience those things that most matter more expansively than we're able to today because of that road. Now, as well as the UNESCO objections, for instance, there was a planning inquiry which also found against it. So there seems to be both from a sort of heritage aspect and from other aspects, there seems to be a sort of critical mass of opinion that says that the tunnel shouldn't go ahead. Is that is that correct? Uh, there is certainly a strong feeling in many people's minds that it shouldn't happen indeed. And, and as you correctly say, uh, a planning investigation did uh, recommend to the Transport Minister that it shouldn't happen. I think this reflects, more than anything, the complexity of the issues involved. Um, I mean, if you read the, the planning advice, it's long and detailed and thorough, and it's never a clear-cut case. And I would say that what's missing from that investigation is a proper appreciation of the positive impact of the proposed changes on the one hand and on the other the almost impossibility of finding any other workable solution and in an ideal world nobody in their right mind would want to do what is being proposed but it's, it's being proposed because there is already a road in the World Heritage Site that again nobody would ever want to put there you know, it's been there since the 18th century and it's just got steadily busier and busier as the, the world around has changed. It's a major through route, it, it, huge problems with it. And there have been over the past two or three decades endless attempts to find a solution that takes the road out of the World Heritage Site. And for all sorts of reasons, it's just not practical. On the one hand, if you go north, you're going into a major, one of the biggest military training areas in Europe literally immediately north of Stonehenge. On the other hand, if you go south, you're going into one of the most beautifully preserved ecological landscapes in northern Europe. And so to put a new road through that would be madness. And you're left with trying to solve the problem on the footprint, more or less, of the existing road, the road that's already there. And so you're converting a road. So you st have to start off with the position that actually there is this road here and, and we want to try and improve things. Putting the road in a tunnel involves massive works engineering. That's not going to be pleasant. It involves creating a dual carriageway where there is presently a single carriageway. Although it's worth noting that there is already a substantial section of dual carriageway inside a major cutting inside the World Heritage Site. 
Um, and it's elements like that that I don't think were fully taken into account during the planning investigation. And also the positive impact of removing that road, I think, has been underplayed. And it does require some imagination. You know, you have to really rethink that landscape. But it's there as a physical barrier ecologically and culturally and visually. So even at the academic level, where you think archaeologists might be beyond being influenced by a road, almost all the excavation in the past century by archaeologists has been north of that road, which is where the monument is. And yet the better preserved ancient remains are south of that road and are largely uninvestigated. And that is simply because that road is there. And if you widen that argument into the wider public, then culturally, um, if you like, turn a constable, they painted the landscape north of the road. In fact, their, their first views of Stonehenge in both cases were actually drawn from where the dual carriageway crests the ridge today that everybody is saying is, is a public right to continue to see, that we want this road to stay there. Um, and it, the southern half has just not been represented culturally and visually. And that has had a profound effect on our understanding of that ancient world and our appreciation of the modern landscape. And I think it's that positive effect of removing that road has not fully been appreciated and has been really significantly underestimated. As you say, you have actually been directly involved in excavations at Stonehenge. Indeed. Can you just give us a flavour for what that's actually like to be working on that ancient site, to be there in amongst those stones and actually directly engaged with that material? I think no archaeologist worth their salt would, would deny that being among the stones directing an excavation is an extraordinary emotive experience. For me personally, my first excavation was as long ago as 1979. Um, when I was a very young archaeologist, I'd only been in my job for a couple of weeks. And it was a long story, essentially involved a visit to Stonehenge by the then Prince Charles. Um, and I suddenly found myself directing an excavation. And I have to say that was the most extraordinary thing. There's nothing about the stones that uh, you can really exaggerate in terms of the, the psychological impact on you. When you visit Stonehenge today, most people, uh, you go during the day and there's a little low fence, little rope that you can't cross and you're distant from the stones. That gives you a great effect in that you can look at the stones and there's no people there. You can take nice selfies. There's just grass and megaliths and you can give the impression, if you're clever, that you're in the middle of Salisbury Plain with nothing but you and the stones. But to get in among the stones gives you a very different experience. And you can do that. It's possible to arrange that with English heritage. And it has to be one of the great heritage experiences anywhere in the world because it's, it's an enclosed space. Even though more than half of the megaliths have disappeared and many of them have fallen down, when you get in the middle, the stones are absolutely massive. It's a sense you don't get when you're outside. Um, and there's a theatrical element to that space that is quite extraordinary and you just think you know that I'm standing I'm looking at this view out I'm standing amongst these stones that that I'm getting the same sort of physical experience that people had thousands of years ago when they knew what they were doing and we don't <laughs> <laughs> so can we just have a moment where we think about what these stones are because last year English Heritage released some findings which suggested that definitively they thought the stones had come from nearby in Wiltshire but there is some new research which is emerging which is saying that they may have come from 250 miles away in Wales so so tell us you know summarize for us what's what's going on here well put simply it's quite easy they're both correct the really big stones come from Wiltshire now it was only last year that the first comprehensive scientific study of this was done and this again was a function of new technologies that have allowed that to, to happen and um, that demonstrated that at least one megalith and possibly all the really big stones came from a tiny little valley southwest of Marlborough in the north of Wiltshire that's about 20 miles away um, those stones are massive I mean some of them are 30 or 40 tons so in engineering terms, 
that short journey across Wiltshire with those megaliths was actually the biggest challenge of the whole construction project. The smaller megaliths at Stonehenge, and these weigh any sort of two or three tonnes, that sort of weight, sometimes a bit more, but they're tiny by comparison. Those do come from Wales. Now, that was established in the 1920s, definitively. In the past decade or so, a couple of geologists have been working almost full-time in their semi-retirement on trying to pin down exactly where all these megaliths come from. And they've been extremely successful. And in two cases, we think that working with archaeologists, they've actually been able to identify a couple of quarries. And that means that they can be archaeologically dated. What's interesting about the new research into these Welsh stones, which we call blue stones, is that almost all the sources that were pinpointed in the 1920s turned out not to have supplied Stonehenge, um, but many other sources have, have been identified in the same area. And that may sound like a somewhat academic distinction, but part of the interest is that it shifted the focus up in the Preseli Hills, these low mountains in Pembrokeshire, from slopes that faced south onto the Welsh coast, the south coast of Wales, to slopes that faced north across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And that also makes a landward journey for the stones more likely than a, than a marine one. And traditionally, archaeologists imagined these stones were shipped in boats or rafts. And that was always seen as being a bit of a problem because archaeologists imagined, and even more so did geologists, that Neolithic people were incapable of making boats, so how did they manage this safely? And archaeologists are now thinking much more that it was more likely that the stones were dragged over land on sledges and this kind of shift in the, the precise location of the quarries fits that very well. I suppose in a way that is what many people find most fascinating about this whole thing is how the hell did they get those things there? It's a feat of engineering just to get them to the site, let alone to make them stand in a particular s structure, etc, etc. Can we even speculate how many people it would have taken to, to move the biggest stones, even that relatively short journey from, from Marlborough? Oh, indeed, we can. We can speculate. And in fact, we've got some useful tools to help us speculate, um, particularly in um, around the Indian Ocean and in Indonesia over the past century or so, people have been recorded moving megaliths and raising them up in monuments that are very similar physically to the things that we see in Neolithic Europe. Um, and while obviously the culture is completely different in terms of engineering and what's possible for people to do you know without massive modern mechanics um, the, these uh, examples are extremely useful and on particularly on the island of Sumba in Indonesia people still occasionally are building megalithic tombs and we can actually go and visit and see them do this and I think the key thing we learn from that is that however many people you think you need to raise a megalith more will turn up and it's it's you know, the, the engineering, the mechanics is not that difficult. I think a lot of things are in the, you know, that we see in the guidebooks about how it was done um, and that we see on the telly, I think a lot of those things are actually wrong. <laughs> but, but in a sense, that's academic. I think the, the bigger issue is that it's not really about mechanics and engineering. It's about society and culture, and particularly it's about organisation, motivation. Um, and what we see in, in Indonesia is that moving and raising a megalith is a huge social event. And it, it usually happens associated with a funeral, with a death. Um, so there are motive, there's an emotive background to it, but there's a lot of politicking going on. There's a lot of um, settling debts or setting up new debts, um, setting up new obligations. And people give their labour, they give their resources, they sacrifice animals for great feasts. And indeed, we have evidence for huge-scale feasting at Stonehenge at the time, or around Stonehenge at the time it was built. And what we see is that you might need a few hundred people to move a megalith, but you're more likely to have a thousand uh, because it looks good. It makes you, if you're organising the event, it makes you look more important, makes you look wealthier, or it makes you look more politically powerful, depending on what your particular agenda is. And people want to be involved. They want to be seen to be helping and in the process of doing that, if you help somebody move a megalith, if somebody is an individual or a family or a particular political group are, are organising this, 
then they owe you something in the future. You know, you're setting up a relationship that could be useful to yourself. And I think that is a really helpful way to think about how Stonehenge was built. It's not just about engineering. That's really fascinating. So lastly, just to return to the tunnel, what's your sense about the future of that site? You know, the tunnel essentially has the go-ahead, but do you think it will be built and do you think we will see that change to the landscape? Well, we're waiting to see whether there's going to be a judicial review. It's always difficult to tell with these things because they often turn on really arcane sort of bureaucratic points that are beyond us mere mortals. Um, Personally, I think it's likely to go ahead because the political will is there more than that has ever been before. Um, If it does go ahead, I will be pleased. Um, In the short term, it's very important to emphasise that Stonehenge is safe. There are going to be no roadworks anywhere near Stonehenge or even barely visible from Stonehenge. Uh, There will be no disturbance in the ground near Stonehenge. Where the road leaves the tunnel at either edge of the World Heritage Site, there will be huge archaeological excavations. Um, This is going to be led by Wessex Archaeology, which is an experienced archaeological consultancy that has been working for decades in the World Heritage Site with various previous road proposals. And it's leading a consortium of eight organisations from across the UK and including one from France, the the National French Institute for Research and Rescue Archaeology. So it's a huge operation, highly skilled. There's a lot of archaeological talent there. Uh, And we will learn more about Stonehenge. In the longer term, when that road is gone out of the World Heritage Site, the centre of the World Heritage Site, that that will start a completely new journey of reinventing that landscape. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for talking to us about it. You're welcome. Thank you. You can read more about Stonehenge at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. Mike Pitts's book, Digging Up Britain, A Million Year History Told Through Ten Excavations, is out in paperback by Thames and Hudson later in the year. Mike's blog, Digging Deeper, is at mikepitts.wordpress.com. Coming up, we hear about French Museum's director's petition to reopen and the artist Christelle Fischetti on Carla Black. But first, here are some of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which is facing a $150 million deficit, has reached out to auction houses and its own curators about potential art sales that could help finance the care of its collections. Such sales are permitted under a loosening of guidelines last year by the Association of Art Museum Directors, or AAMD. But the move is stirring dissent among art world figures who worry that the Met's influence could prompt a wave of other American museums to follow suit. A Change.org petition has been started by the art critic and podcast host Tyler Green and argues that the Mets board is, quote, chock full of billionaires. We call on the Mets board to do the job they signed up for, to give, to support the institution, the petition states. The Uffizi Galleries in Florence, home to masterpieces by artists such as Michelangelo and Leonardo, has acquired its first street art piece, a montage by the UK artist Endless, incorporating the collaborative duo Gilbert and George. Ika Schmidt, the Uffizi's director, claims that the Medici, the Florentine rulers who built the Uffizi, were always at the cutting edge and would be happy to see Endless's work enter the collection. Endless, who donated the work to the museum, says in a statement, It's an honour that my work's been added to the collection of the Uffizi galleries. Artists who come from a street art background are rarely recognised by the most prestigious museums. And finally, the actor Riz Ahmed and Zoe Whitley, director of the Chisenhale Gallery in London, are among the members of a new diversity commission established by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, which aims to achieve greater diversity in the public realm, reigniting the debate about how to deal with monuments dedicated to controversial historical figures. Fifteen panellists were selected for the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm following an open recruitment process. The Mayor said that for far too long, too many Londoners have felt unrepresented by the statues, street names and building names all around them. And it's important that we do what we can to ensure our rich and diverse history is celebrated and properly commemorated in our city. You can read these stories and more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's presents Framing the Figure, a special exhibition of diverse works exploring the long tradition of figuration in art. From the piercing narratives of Diane Arbus to the private atmospheric world of Salman Tour, these works demonstrate the range of approaches to depicting the human form in art, as well as the times in which these artists live. Open now until mid-March. Visit christies.com to view the exhibition or make an appointment to see the works in person at Christie's Galleries in the heart of Rockefeller Centre. Welcome back. Now, in some European cities, museums are beginning to reopen after the latest lockdown. Institutions in Austria opened their doors this week. But in France, they remain closed, and last week, around 100 leading figures in the French art scene published an open letter at change.org calling on the French culture minister, Rosaline Bachelot, to lift COVID-19 restrictions on the country's museums and galleries and allow them to reopen as widely and as soon as possible. The petition, launched by the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, has garnered more than 8,000 signatures so far. Another open letter arguing for the lifting of restrictions was published by art publications, including the art newspaper France. And in recent days, the far-right mayor of Perpignan in southwest France, Louis Alliot, ordered museums in that city to open. The French government are challenging his decision in the courts. One of the signatories of last week's petition was Jean-Francois Chounier, president of Mousson, the Museum of European and Mediterranean Civilizations in Marseille, and I spoke to him about this latest push for reopening. Jean-Francois, before we talk about um, the actions that are being taken at the moment, can you just set the scene in terms of where are French museums at the moment? How long have you been closed and what's the current situation? So all the French uh, museums, uh, private and public, uh, are closed uh, beginning of uh, November uh, last year in the second national uh, lockdown. It's not a complete lockdown, as you know, in France. It's a, it's a partial one because uh, uh, business is, uh, is going uh, <laughs> quite well. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the national uh, museum on the the city museum and the private museum are closed. And we, uh, as are closed, theaters, uh, movie theaters, uh, uh, all the cultural venues, uh, with the exception of uh, li- libraries and bookshops. We are still open to the, to the audience. And there have been regular hints from the culture minister, Rosalind Bachelot about potential reopening is that right so she has the deadline has kept being extended as it were okay it's quite new because at the at the beginning the, the ministry of culture the on the minister of culture Roselyne Bachelot as well as the the health minister Olivier Véran have said uh, no way um, cultural venue had, has to to be closed we have a summer uh, hope in the beginning of December because uh, the situation was not so so bad, but because of the uh, English, as we as we call in French, the variant on the the South African one and the, all the new variant of the pandemic, we stay closed. Uh, decision was taken in the beginning of December to to close, and there was uh, also uh, a, a, a court decision. The Conseil d'État is our our one of supreme card if you if we prefer we we say okay the government is, uh, is uh, has the right to ask to cultural venues to be closed it was taken in the uh, beginning of january uh, this year 2021 under uh, but there is an, an evolution of the situation the first evolution is that uh, as a difference of uh, uh, a lot of newspapers have said before there is no decision in uh, January or beginning of February to start again a complete lockdown. Donc we, we, because it was more or less uh, uh, end of January, what, what was uh, said to the, in the newspaper, and we, we still are in the same situation that we have done in the uh, end of October with uh, a lot of uh, uh, supermarkets open uh, and also bookshops. And uh, Donc, we, we, are, we are still in the same uh, regulations and, um, and the, at the end of the, of the year. In that situation, some of uh, the museum directors and, and also contemporary art center museum have written uh, an open letter 
last uh, last week. We, he was uh, launched by Emma Laving, the president of the Palais de Tokyo, which is an art contemporary venue in, in, in Paris, under signed by uh, more or less hundred of uh, uh, leading museum directors. I was uh, one of them at the beginning. And uh, we, we asked to allow the museum under contemporary art venues and also the heritage places in France to, to be reopened. Of course, if we need to short the day of admission, like Italian Museum have done, if we, are, we accept it, if we, we have probably to, to restrain the number of, the, of visitors the, who are allowed to visit uh, exhibition spaces, of a lot of normal, uh, normal uh, regulation, have, have we have done more or less during the the period of reopening uh, because the museum uh, French museum have uh, reopened uh, in June uh, 2020 and closed uh, end of October. So we we have the experience of uh, several months uh, in which the, in our case in Marseille the, in the museum the attendance was. Uh, quite the same than the year to, uh, 2019, well, more or less the same, with a lot of difference of type of uh, visitor, uh, younger people, uh, less stranger, uh, a lot of differences, of course, but we, we, we have more or less the same. It was the case of the, of the regional museum in, in general in France. Paris was an exception because uh, the biggest uh, museum in Paris are normally uh, 80% of uh, foreigners. Or, uh, uh, donc we, we, we have a strong difference during the, the, the months of reopening of the, the museums. I'd like to analyse some aspects of that open letter because there, it seems to me there, there were several very compelling points. One of them is about this idea that, that museums are as spaces are circulant. So circulatory, I guess, is the translation. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean by that? It's very recent. It's uh, this new concept. It's not, uh, at this moment, a juridical concept. We, we have, uh, but the, uh, the, our minister, Roselyne Bachelot, and the, and the Ministry of uh, Health, Olivier Véran, have said that it can accept strong differences between cultural spaces in which the audience stay and listen, listen to, to the theater play or, or movie, and uh, circulating cultural spaces. It means uh, basically, museums, uh, heritage uh, castle, or I don't know, uh, gardens also, uh, or contemporary art spaces in which the public enter and can be um, don't stay on the to probably the idea is to reduce the contamination between people in the in the audience. We have uh, in in the case of Marseille, uh, the museum I. Um, director, we had the, we have done in the summer a lot of studies, uh, medical studies, because in Marseille we have a, we have a good uh, laboratory. We are able to to do that. We 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 are, studi we are studying the the surfaces, uh, the the water supplies, all the all the questions. Uh, we know that during the all the months of uh, reopening, we never had. Uh, suspicion of having uh, uh, the coronavirus inside of uh, of our museum. People probably was contaminated. We don't uh, we don't <laughs> we ask the we ask people who are contaminated not not to enter. But some, as you know, probably uh, a lot of them don't uh, don't even know they are they are they are sick in that in that time. The other aspect of it, which is again a very interesting point, is that. President Macron has made this argument that students should be able to attend universities, um, their campuses, for one day a week physically. Yes, exactly. And there is a and you in that petition you argue that essentially, effectively, especially for art students and art history students, the the museum is a is a kind of campus. Is that right? Exactly. We well, a lot of us are very engaged in the relationship with, with students. It means students in the uni university, but 
also pupils of the, the, the different levels of uh, education. We are still open in France because we, uh, university are uh, online, if, you, if, can, if I can say, but the, the rest of the education system is, uh, uh, it, at this moment, some, 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 uh, some region in France are uh, on holidays, but uh, because it's, it's a mid-term uh, holidays in, uh, in France, actually. But the rest of uh, normally in Marseille, for example, this morning, pupils are going normally to, to school. Don't we, we ask to, to our authorities to be because we are very engaged uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, students professors wanted to go to museum or to cultural spaces uh, contemporary art for example and we we ask our authorities to 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 allow them it can be an exception also to to enter to the museum we we have a meeting with our ministry last monday and we discuss a lot about this this point because it, it's an essential in France, it's an, as in England, an essential um, uh, mission purpose of uh, of uh, major museums. Can you say any more about that meeting with the ministry? So you met, it's right, you met um, Rosalind Bachelot, is that right? And as a, on a Zoom call, there were something like thirty five of you and and Rosalind Bachelot. Can you say any more about what the content of that meeting was, and what to what extent? Did she give you any potentially hard information about when you might be able to reopen? No, the purpose of this meeting was to discuss what condition we can have to respect to uh, to eventually reopen. It was uh, the purpose of this meeting on uh, last uh, last Monday. She said, "I can and I am unable to say to you when we can reopen, but in the case that cultural venues." can reopen, uh, museum, heritage places, and contemporary art uh, centers will be the first to, to reopen. And what it, and it was the purpose of, the, of this meeting. Don't, she don't say we can reopen uh, end of February in two days. And, and she asked us every, every, the, uh, how, ma how many times we need to reopen because it's a question. In our case, we, we can reopen in two days in Marseille, but some major museum in Paris, of course, need one week or probably 10 days to reopen. The, the, the chairman of Le Louvre, Jean-Luc Martinez, say he need a little more time to, it's normal because it's not, not the same to reopen the Louvre that reopen a, a smaller city museums and uh, on the, but in our case, in Marseille, we can technically reopen in two days. Look, it's in, she asked us for this point. Over the last couple of days, there's um, this story about a far-right mayor of the Front National, a uh, mayor in, in Perpignan, who has insisted that museums open in, uh, against the government's advice. Is he just a maverick um, politician, or does he reflect a wider concern amongst region in the regions about the government policy, and and might we see more mayors or regional politicians acting against the governmental advice? I, I think it's a it's a very special case because it's only a mayor of a, a big city, which is a member of the Rassemblement National, as, a, as a, the new name of the party of Marine Le Pen. Uh, I think it's more a, a political uh, gesture. But other mayors uh, who are not members of the Rassemblement National uh, was tainted, but juridically, it's, uh, it can be, it's not correct because there is a, there is a law published end of October. We say all the museum, we have uh, some categories of, uh, of spaces. The museum are a category. Uh, it's, uh, and, and all of them have to be closed. It's, uh, there is no way to have a, a regional decision or local decision to reopen. Look, it's, you see, absolutely uh, uh, incorrect in terms of other mayor of other party have, uh, have the, same, the same idea before because the, uh, the mayor of uh, Lyons, which is uh, now it's a new mayor, um, we, we are uh, on the ecological uh, party. Uh, I've, I've done a press release 
in uh, December saying the same, I want to reopen the, the Musée des Confluences, which is the, the new museum in, in Lyons. Um, on, but uh, after asking to, to the government, he, he have postponed the, the, the decision. Prob I don't know if there is in the next day some other mayor who would do the same. I'm not absolutely sure because it's uh, it was uh, it's really uh, incorrect in terms of uh, legislation. Of normally, uh, it's complex for a mayor to do a rebellion uh, against <laughs> against the law. It's not against the government. It's against the law. That's great. Jean-Francois, thank you so much for talking to us about this subject. Thank you. You can read more on this story on the website and the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, the artist Christelle Fischetti talks about Wishlist, a sculptural installation by the artist Carla Black, shown at Tate Britain in 2008 and now in a private collection in New York. Amy Dawson, our associate digital editor, spoke to Chris Dow about the work. Christelle, there are obviously a lot of similarities between some of your own works and uh, works by Carla Black. And the work that you've chosen to talk about, Wishlist, um, there are definitely works of yours that have striking comparisons, which we'll get to a bit later. But first, I wanted to know why, in particular, this work by her that you've chosen to speak about. Um, I think it was the most striking work that I'd seen of hers in general that I'd ever come across. Uh, that was the main entry of getting to know the artist and her practice. So that was the main work that I'd seen. And I just, when I saw it, I kind of understood what she was doing with it. Um, it's something in between sculpture and painting. And... Obviously, the, the found material aspect as well. I just thought that was so rebel and renegade of her as well, which obviously I'm very attracted by with artists who would just really think outside of the box in that way. Just I just love that work. It must have been about 10 years ago or something. I'm pretty sure it was at the Tate in London, Tate Britain. I'm pretty sure it was that that was the first place I'd seen it. Like you say, it's a piece that kind of, it's sculptural, but it's also experiential and, and it has a performance element to it. Do you want to describe the work? I have to address something. It is made by an artist who happens to be a woman. And then obviously it's also painted in pigment, uh, which is like a pink, sort of pink colour. I think the thing is, is that we can get so involved with gender stereotypes. I think that's just in terms of a philosophical, sociological aspect. That's something that we can, as a spectator, because I'm not the artist there at that point, I'm the spectator viewing the work. You know, we can start to get ideas about the semantics of it and the, the symbology and, and the ideology of it. But let's just say it's like as a, as a piece of it in its own right, it's very powerful. It's a very expansive work. It's at eye level, which the artist does talk about, you know, paintings being at eye level. It's very spiritual, I think, and it's in between two planes. It's just above the ground and it's just low enough from the ceiling. So it's at eye level, like most paintings are hung on a frame at eye level. Um, and I just love the fact that she, the artist, incorporates those ideas of art history and how paintings should be hung. And of course, it does have an ha a hanging element to it. You know, it's hanging with, I think it's with string. I actually don't have the materials to hand right now. <laughs> I apologise. But, you know, it is it, it's, it's is hanging from two ends of one end of the sculptural painting to the other end. And there is a tension there as well. And it's made with pigment paint. So uh, from what I understand, it's made with pigment. A lot of her work is made with uh, makeup as well and powder and, and plaster. And there is also the idea of like products from a shop. It doesn't matter if it's products from an art shop or products from a makeup shop or, you know, from Lush products, which is something, a place where she gets her products to make art as well. It's just the idea of that consumerism. It doesn't really matter. It's made from a, a factory to make it into an artwork. So there's already that breakdown of ideas about art in its own right as well. And, you know, there's kind of like a plastic element to it. It's 
I don't know. I just love the fact that you can walk around it and it's just very expansive. It's just very expansive. It reminds me of a cloud. It reminds me of a mythic animal possibly that I've never seen before. It's something otherworldly to me. And it's so simple. There aren't any necessary marks or lines or painterly aspects to it other than the fact is the whole thing, the whole subject is about painting. And you too use products that are unusual, not your normal art cupboard supplies. Maybe you can talk about the kinds of products that you use and the way that you work. I watched a video of Carla in her studio and she's working on the floor uh, in a way that I think is very similar to your practice um, with everything out kind of mixing and matching with all kinds of products to the point that Often when she talks about her work, she doesn't even know necessarily which materials are on it because it's so instinctive. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's it's great that she's, let's say, allowing or helping people to ask these sort of questions um, about what's right, what's needed um, in the art world, h- how we hang a work, the, the right materials. And, and it can be quite archaic and... And sometimes tradition is great, but sometimes it can be very limiting as well because it doesn't allow painting as a subject, as a department, as it were, to continue evolving, you know. And I think that someone like herself, of course, is huge, massive influence in my work. I can't deny it. And that's why I've I've picked her for this podcast. And I do, yeah, I do use plastic. And I, I think I, for me, I use plastic, um, upcycling, upcycling, you know, delivery plastic and cardboard and and things like that for an environmental reason, particularly with me. Um, I've also been making my own botanical dyes and I'm continuing to research that. It's something that I want to eventually at some point do a PhD on. And also with her, when she talks about her work, it's like very kind of about the wild and very carnal and coming back to that element of the primitive, which yes, of course, the primitive is such a highly debated word in the art world and there's like yes and no's and do's and don'ts about talking about it but I'd like to address it it's about being in touch with our wild self and being on the floor and rolling around and and actually doing that and that's accepted in the art world in the studio at least but then putting it in the context of the temple which is the art world you know the temple the museum there's like columns and it's very greek and like again the whole pantheon of art history and everything you walk in and you've got to be quiet and <laughs> all of this kind of stuff it's just really funny and i and i love the fact that the wish list painting uh, or sculptural painting was at the tape written which again is like so heavily entrenched in in tradition and in art history and then of course, many other things as well related to our ideology here in the UK. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's also the fact that she's Scottish and Scottish. And I think the Scots, like my late mentor, they always, they always have a bit of a rebellious nature. And I love that. Uh, they're not afraid to speak their mind either. And just maybe there's something quite warlike about being okay showing who one really is you know and I think as an artist myself like rolling around and and it being a performance in its own right as well me painting there's something very childlike and very animal very wild woman about me doing it and I I love being in touch with that element of myself because I sure as heck can't do that outside on the the main high street (laughs) (laughs) And she doesn't apologise for her work being very different and disrupting these stereotypes that people have built. And I think it was really exciting that she was nominated for the Turner Prize in 2011, even though she didn't win it, because it was, like you say, breaking down that canon. And I think that since that show, there's been increasing kind of variety in the artists that have been nominated for the prize. Absolutely. I mean, another artist that I was very inspired by years ago when I was like 16 or whatever was Sam Taylor Wood, you know, just just sort of documenting life, life studies, you know, of people crying and celebrities crying. I mean, that's that's another element of painting and the painting and and studying humanity and and the human form. And I think that for me, at least how I see Carla Black's work she may not agree with me <laughs> but how I see her work it's it's just again it's another element of observing 
appreciating what this whole human existence is about. I want to talk to you about your solo show that's opening this month at Grove Square Galleries in London, but also available to view online, of course. I know that there are some works in the show that could be described as akin to the wish list. Do you want to talk about uh, the show and some of the work that you are exhibiting? Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited about this show. They're all autobiographical. So every single painting, there's 36 paintings. Um, I'm 36 right now. Yeah, it's basically a conclusion of not just my experience of the last year in 2020, but the last decade. And a lot of these works do incorporate, you know, found materials or materials that are meant for specific purpose, like bed sheets, for example. And, you know, that for me is there's a lot of paintings that in, involve me painting on bed sheets and they are symbols of intimacy the moments and times that I had cried and slept on my own after heartbreaks, not just from last year, but from 10 years before. And they're very, they're very close to my skin, obviously. Um, but also, I've, I would say, are infused with kind of my energy, you know. So there, there's, there are lots of paintings like that. For example, there's the Happiness is Transient painting. So that's kind of like a rainbow acrylic backdrop with these soak-stained bedsheets um, in acrylic and oil paint as well. And they're sort of like stretched around the actual painting and the frame. And they, there's a tension and there's a control, but there's also an element of release. And then, of course, the title being Happiness is Transient. Again, it's a human emotion whereby we can never really pursue it. We can try to. And I think that's something that we've all experienced during 2020 is happiness is transient you know we can be happy one minute it just depends on what you believe happiness is you know and there's other paintings as well uh like for example the immutation immunization and it's a bit of a tongue twister i guess um but it has upcycled bubble wrap which i've used from packaging and uh it, it is about you know the virus and the pandemic and everything but it was also a prediction that i had made a month before they had declared that there was going to be a mutation of this virus, at least here in the UK. I'm also highly, I'm a psychic medium as well. So that's kind of also my other business, which is me delivering healing services to people. But the actual painting itself, um, made again with acrylics and then found materials, um, oils and botanical dyes, lots of gesture. There's other ones as well. There's one called PA equals power animal, which is Again, the subject that we spoke about earlier in terms of the feral and the wild woman. Um, and then there's these sort of cuts that I made with a knife across, slashed across the actual canvas, which is acrylic and oil. And again, reclaiming that identity and the, the idea that, well, if another Italian could do it, me being half Italian myself, part Italian, Lucio Fontana did it. There's huge symbolism with the cuts and the slit and, you know, the, the connotations of the womb and the, the vagina and the opening. And Lucio Fontana was really known for all of these works that he had made. And I thought I would like to reclaim that. And I would like to reclaim that for all women. <laughs> and um, And in the context of art history as well I mean you know that there is something to be said about being an artist but there's no denying the fact that I am a woman and there is a certain element of leadership that I must make sure that I am upholding the best version of that you know without necessarily having to um, undermine my emotions my, my my way of being my gender or overdo it by over exaggerating and 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 becoming quite possibly the distorted feminine being quite aggressive with it. I don't think there's any need for that anymore. I, that has been seen in the art world, but I think it's just something about an equal balance. But there's nothing wrong, again, with portraying that in a slightly kind of strong way with the PA equals power animal painting, with like the very gestural, let's say, and evocative aura that it gives off. Crystal, thanks so much for talking to us. Good luck with the show. Thank you so much. I really had a lot of fun. Thank you, Amy. Take care.
Christelle Fischetti's solo show at the Grove Square Galleries in London, called Hello Again, is scheduled to continue until the 9th of April. Visit grovesquaregalleries.com to see a virtual tour. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, A Brush With, if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Judy Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Mike, to Jean-Francois, and to Amy and Cristal, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.